Chapter 22 of 80 Years and More, Reminiscences, 1815-1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Karen Cummins. 80 Years and More, Reminiscences, 1815-1897 by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Chapter 22. Reforms and Reformers in Great Britain. Reaching London in the fogs and mist of November 1882, the first person I met, after a separation of many years, was our revered and beloved friend, William Henry Channing. The tall, graceful form was somewhat bent, the sweet, thoughtful face somewhat sadder, the crimes and miseries of the world seemed heavy on his heart. With his refined, nervous organization, the gloomy moral and physical atmosphere of London was the last place on earth where that beautiful life should have ended. I found him in earnest conversation with my daughter and the young Englishman she was soon to marry, advising them not only as to the importance of the step they were about to take, but as to the minor points to be observed in the ceremony. At the appointed time, a few friends gathered in Portland Street Chapel, and as we approached the altar, our friend appeared in surplice and gown, his pale spiritual face more tender and beautiful than ever. This was the last marriage service he ever performed, and it was as pathetic as original. His whole appearance was so in harmony with the exquisite sentiments he uttered that we who listened felt as if, for the time being, we had entered with him into the Holy of Holies. Sometime after, Miss Anthony and I called on him to return our thanks for the very complimentary review he had written of the history of woman suffrage. He thanked us in turn for the many pleasant memories we had revived in those pages. But, said he, they have filled me with indignation, too, at the repeated insults offered to women so earnestly engaged in honest endeavors for the uplifting of mankind. I blushed for my sex more than once in reading these volumes. We lingered long, talking over the events connected with our great struggle for freedom. He dwelt with tenderness on our disappointments and entered more fully into the humiliations suffered by women than any man we ever met. His views were as appreciative of the humiliation of woman through the degradation of sex as those expressed by John Stuart Mill in his wonderful work on The Subjection of Women. He was intensely interested in Francis Power Cobb's efforts to suppress vivisection and the last time I saw him, he was presiding at a parlor meeting where Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell gave an admirable address on the cause and cure of the social evil. Mr. Channing spoke beautifully in closing, paying a warm and merited compliment to Dr. Blackwell's clear and concise review of all the difficulties involved in the question. Reading so much of English reformers in our journals, of the Brights, McLarens, the Taylors, of Lydia Becker, Josephine Butler, and Octavia Hill, 
and of their great demonstrations with lords and members of parliament in the chair. We had longed to compare the actors in those scenes with our speakers on this side of the water. At last we met them, one and all, in great public meetings and parlor reunions, at dinners and receptions. We listened to their public men in Parliament, the courts, and the pulpit, to the women in their various assemblies, and came to the conclusion that Americans surpassed them in oratory and the conduct of their meetings. A hesitating, apologetic manner seems to be the national custom for an exordium on all questions. Even their ablest men who have visited this country, such as Kingsley, Stanley, Arnold, Tyndall, and Coleridge, have all been criticized by the American public for their elocutionary defects. They have no speakers to compare with Wendell Phillips, George William Curtis, or Anna Dickinson, although John Bright is without peer among his countrymen, as is Mrs. Besant among the women. The women, as a general rule, are more fluent than the men. I reached England in time to attend the great demonstration in Glasgow to celebrate the extension of the municipal franchise to the women of Scotland. It was a remarkable occasion. St. Andrew's immense hall was packed with women. A few men were admitted to the gallery at half a crown apiece. Over 5,000 people were present. When a Scotch audience is thoroughly roused, nothing can equal the enthusiasm. The arrival of the speakers on the platform was announced with the wildest applause, the entire audience rising, waving their handkerchiefs, and clapping their hands, and every compliment paid the people of Scotland was received with similar outburst. Mrs. McLaren, a sister of John Bright, presided and made the opening speech. I had the honor, on this occasion, of addressing an audience for the first time in the old world. Many others spoke briefly. There were too many speakers. No one had time to warm up to the point of eloquence. Our system of conventions, of two or three days' duration, with long speeches discussing pointed and radical resolutions, is quite unknown in England. Their meetings consist of one session of a few hours, into which they crowd all the speakers they can summon. They have a few tame, printed resolutions, on which there can be no possible difference of opinion, with the names of those who are to speak appended. Each of these is read, and a few short speeches are made that may or may not have the slightest reference to the resolutions, which are then passed. The last is usually one of thanks to some lord or member of the House of Commons who may have condescended to preside at the meeting or do something for the measure in Parliament. The Queen is referred to tenderly in most of the speeches, although she has never done anything to merit the approbation of the advocates of suffrage for women. From Glasgow, quite a large party of the Brights and McLarens went to Edinburgh where the Honorable Duncan McLaren gave us a warm welcome to Newington House, under the very shadow of the Salisbury Crags. These, and the Pentland Hills, are remarkable features in the landscape as you approach this beautiful city, 
with its mountains and castles. We passed a few charming days driving about, visiting old friends, and discussing the status of woman on both sides of the Atlantic. Here we met Elizabeth Pease Nickel and Jane and Eliza Wiggum, whom I had not seen since we sat together in the World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840. Yet I knew Mrs. Nickel at once. Her strongly marked face was not readily forgotten. I went with the family on Sunday to the friends' meeting, where a most unusual manifestation for that decorous sect occurred. I had been told that, if I felt inclined, it would be considered quite proper for me to make some remarks. And just as I was revolving an opening sentence to a few thoughts I desired to present, a man arose in a remote part of the house and began, in a low voice, to give his testimony as to the truth that was in him. All eyes were turned toward him, when suddenly a friend leaned over the back of the seat, seized his coattails, and jerked him down in a most emphatic manner. The poor man buried his face in his hands and maintained a profound silence. I learned afterward that he was a bore, and the friend in the rear thought it wise to nip him in the bud. This scene put to flight all intentions of speaking on my part, lest I, too, might get outside the prescribed limits and be suppressed by force. I dined that day with Mrs. Nickel at Huntley Lodge, where she has entertained, in turn, many of our American reformers. Her walls have echoed to the voices of Garrison, Rogers, Samuel J. May, Parker Pillsbury, Henry C. Wright, Douglas, Ramond, and host of English philanthropists. Though over 80 years of age, she was still awake to all questions of the hour and generous in her hospitalities as of yore. Mrs. Margaret Lucas, whose whole soul was in the temperance movement, escorted me from Edinburgh to Manchester to be present at another great demonstration in the town hall, the finest building in that district. It had just been completed, and with its anteroom, dining hall, and various apartments for social entertainments, was by far the most perfect hall I had seen in England. There I was entertained by Mrs. Matilda Roby, who, with her husband, gave me a most hospitable reception. She invited several friends to luncheon one day, among others Miss Lydia Becker, editor of the Suffrage Journal in that city, and the Reverend Mr. Steinthal, who had visited this country and spoken on our platform. The chief topic at the table was John Stuart Mill, his life, character, writings, and his position with reference to the political rights of women. In the evening, we went to see Ristori in Queen Elizabeth. Having seen her many years before in America, I was surprised to find her still so vigorous. And thus, week after week, suffrage meetings, receptions, dinners, luncheons, and theaters pleasantly alternated. The following Sunday, we heard in London a grand sermon from Moncure D. Conway, 
and had a pleasant interview with him and Mrs. Conway at the close of the session. Later, we spent a few days at their artistic home, filled with books, pictures, and mementos from loving friends. A billiard room with well-worn cues, balls, and table. Quite a novel adjunct to a parsonage may, in a measure, account for his vigorous sermons. A garden reception to Mr. and Mrs. Howells gave us an opportunity to see the American novelist surrounded by his English friends. Soon after this, Mr. Conway asked me to fill his pulpit. I retired Saturday night, very nervous over my sermon for the next day, and the feeling steadily increased until I reached the platform. But once there, my fears were all dissipated, and I never enjoyed speaking more than on that occasion, for I had been so long oppressed with the degradation of woman under canon law and church discipline that I had a sense of relief in pouring out my indignation. My theme was, What has Christianity done for woman? And by the facts of history, I showed clearly that to no form of religion was woman indebted for one impulse of freedom, as all alike have taught her inferiority and subjection. No lofty virtues can emanate from such a condition. Whatever heights of dignity and purity women have individually attained can in no way be attributed to the dogmas of their religion. With my son Theodore, always deeply interested in my friends and public work, I called, during my stay in London, on Mrs. Gray, Miss Jessie Boucherette, and Dr. Hogan, who had written essays for The Woman Question in Europe on our American minister, Mr. Lowell, Mr. and Mrs. George W. Smalley, and many other notable men and women. By appointment, we had an hour with the Honorable John Bright at his residence on Piccadilly. As his photograph, with his fame, had reached America, his fine face and head, as well as his political opinions, were quite familiar to us. He received us with great cordiality and manifested a clear knowledge and deep interest in regard to all American affairs. Free trade and woman suffrage form the basis of our conversation. The literature of our respective countries and our great men and women were the lighter topics of the occasion. He was not sound in regard to the political rights of women, but it is not given to any one man to be equally clear on all questions. He voted for John Stuart Mill's amendment to the Household Suffrage Bill in 1867, but he said that was a personal favor to a friend without any strong convictions as to the merit of what I considered a purely sentimental measure. We attended the meeting called to rejoice over the passage of the Married Women's Property Bill, which gave to the women of England in 1882 what we had enjoyed in many states in this country since 1848. Mrs. Jacob Bright, Mrs. Scatcherd, Mrs. Elmy, and several members of Parliament made short speeches of congratulation to those who had been instrumental in carrying the measure. It was generally conceded that to the tact and persistence of Mrs. Jacob Bright, 
more than to any other person, belong the credit of that achievement. Jacob Bright was at the time a member of Parliament, and fully in sympathy with the bill, and while Mrs. Bright exerted all her social influence to make it popular with the members, her husband, thoroughly versed in parliamentary tactics, availed himself of every technicality to push the bill through the House of Commons. Mrs. Bright's chief object in securing this bill, aside from establishing the right that every human being has to his own property, was to place married women on an even plane with widows and spinsters, thereby making them qualified voters. The next day, we went out to Barn Elms to visit Mr. and Mrs. Charles McLaren. He was a member of Parliament, a Quaker by birth and education, and had sustained, to his uttermost ability, the suffrage movement. His charming wife, the daughter of Mrs. Pochin, is worthy of the noble mother who was among the earliest leaders on that question, speaking and writing with ability on all phases of the subject. Barn Elms is a grand old estate, a few miles out of London. It was the dairy farm of Queen Elizabeth and was presented to her by Sir Francis Walsingham. Since then, it has been inhabited by many persons of note. It has existed as an estate since the time of the early Saxon kings, and the record of the sale of Barn Elms in the time of King Athelstane is still extant. What with its well-kept lawns, fine old trees, glimpses here and there of the Thames winding round its borders, and its wealth of old associations, it is indeed a charming spot. Our memory of those days will not go back to Saxon kings, but remain with the liberal host and hostess, the beautiful children, and the many charming acquaintances we met at that fireside. I doubt whether any of the ancient lords and ladies who dispensed their hospitalities under that roof did in any way surpass the present occupants. Mrs. McLaren, interested in all the reforms of the day, is radical in her ideas, a brilliant talker, and for one so young, remarkably well-informed on all political questions. It was at Barn Elms I met, for the first time, Mrs. Fanny Hertz, to whom I was indebted for many pleasant acquaintances afterward. She is said to know more distinguished literary people than any other woman in London. I saw her, too, several times in her home, meeting at her Sunday afternoon receptions many persons I was desirous to know. On one occasion, I found George Jacob Holyoke there, surrounded by several young ladies all stoutly defending the nihilist in Russia, and their right to plot their way to freedom. They counted a dynasty of czars as nothing in the balance with the liberties of a whole people. As I joined the circle, Mr. Holyoke called my attention to the fact that he was the only one in favor of peaceful measures. Now, said he, I have often heard it said on your platform that the feminine element in politics would bring about perpetual peace in government, and here all these ladies are advocating the worst forms of violence in the name of liberty. Ah, said I, lay on their shoulders the responsibility of governing, 
and they would soon become as mild and conservative as you seem to be. He then gave us his views on cooperation, the only remedy for many existing evils, which he thought would be the next step toward a higher civilization. There, too, I met some positivists who, though liberal on religious questions, were very narrow as to the sphere of woman. The difference in sex, which is the very reason why men and women should be associated in all forms of activity, is to them the strongest reason why they should be separated. Mrs. Hertz belongs to the Harrison School of Positivists. I went with her to one of Mrs. Orr's receptions, where we met Robert Browning, a fine-looking man of 70 years, with white hair and mustache. He was frank, easy, playful, and brilliant in conversation. Mrs. Orr seemed to be taking a very pessimistic view of our present sphere of action, which Mr. Browning, with poetic coloring, was trying to paint more hopefully. The next day I dined with Margaret Bright Lucas, in company with John P. Thomason, Member of Parliament, and his wife, and afterward we went to the House of Commons and had the good fortune to hear Gladstone, Parnell, and Sir Charles Dilke. Seeing Bradlow seated outside of the charmed circle, I sent my card to him, and in the corridor we had a few moments' conversation. I asked him if he thought he would eventually get his seat. He replied, Most assuredly I will. I shall open the next campaign with such an agitation as will rouse our politicians to some consideration of the changes gradually coming over the face of things in this country. The place assigned ladies in the House of Commons is really a disgrace to a country ruled by a queen. This dark perch is the highest gallery, immediately over the speaker's desk and government seats, behind a fine wire netting, so that it is quite impossible to see or hear anything. The 16 persons who can crowd into the front row by standing with their noses partly through the open network can have the satisfaction of seeing the cranial arch of their rulers and hearing an occasional pean to liberty or an Irish growl at the lack of it. I was told that this network was to prevent the members on the floor from being disturbed by the beauty of the women. On hearing this, I remarked that I was devoutly thankful that our American men were not so easily disturbed, and that the beauty of our women was not of so dangerous a type. I could but contrast our spacious galleries in that magnificent capital at Washington, as well as in our grand state capitals, where hundreds of women can sit at their ease and see and hear their rulers, with these dark, dingy buildings. My son, who had a seat on the floor just opposite the ladies' gallery, said he could compare our appearance to nothing but birds in a cage. He could not distinguish an outline of anybody. All he could see was the moving of feathers and furs or some bright ribbon or flower. In the libraries, the courts, and the House of Lords, I found many suggestive subjects of thought. It was interesting to find, on the frescoed walls, many historical scenes in which women had taken a prominent part, 
among others, there was Jane Lane assisting Charles II to escape, and Alice Lyle concealing the fugitives after the Battle of Sedgemoor. Six wives of Henry VIII stood forth, a solemn pageant when one recalled their sad fate. Alas, whether for good or ill, women must ever fill a large space in the tragedies of the world. I passed a few pleasant hours in the house where Macaulay spent his last years, the once spacious library and the large bow window, looking out on a beautiful lawn where he sat from day to day, writing his glowing periods, possessed a peculiar charm for me, as the surroundings of genius always do. I thought, as I stood there, how often he had unconsciously gazed on each object in searching for words rich enough to gild his ideas. The house was owned and occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Winkworth. It was at one of their sociable Sunday teas that many pleasant memories of the great historian were revived. One of the most remarkable and genial women I met was Miss Frances Power Cobb. She called one afternoon and sipped with me the five o'clock tea, a uniform practice in England. She was of medium height, stout, rosy and vigorous looking, with a large well-shaped head, a strong happy face, and gifted with rare powers of conversation. I felt very strongly attracted to her. She was frank and cordial, and pronounced in all her views. She gave us an account of her efforts to rescue unhappy cats and dogs from the hands of the vivisectionist. We saw her, too, in her home and in her office in Victoria Street. The perfect order in which her books and papers were arranged and the exquisite neatness of the apartments were refreshing to behold. My daughter, having decided opinions of her own, was soon at loggerheads with Miss Cobb on the question of vivisection. After we had examined several German and French books with illustrations showing the horrible cruelty inflicted on cats and dogs, she enlarged on the hypocrisy and wickedness of these scientists and, turning to my daughter, said, Would you shake hands with one of these vivisectionists? Yes, said Harriet. I should be proud to shake hands with Virchow, the great German scientist, for his kindness to a young American girl. She applied to several professors to be admitted to their classes, but all refused except Virchow. He readily assented and requested his students to treat her with becoming courtesy. If any of you behave otherwise, said he, I shall feel myself personally insulted. She entered his classes and pursued her studies, unmolested and with great success. Now, would you, Miss Cobb, refuse to shake hands with any of your statesmen, scientists, clergymen, lawyers, or physicians who treat women with constant indignities and insult? Oh, no, said Miss Cobb. Then, said Harriet, you estimate the physical suffering of cats and dogs as of more consequence than the humiliation of human beings. The man who tortures a cat for a scientific purpose is not as low in the scale of beings, in my judgment, as one who sacrifices his own daughter to some cruel custom. 
as we were just then reading Froude's Life of Carlyle, we drove by the house where Carlyle had lived and paused a moment at the door where poor Jenny went in and out so often with a heavy heart. The book gives a painful record of a great soul struggling with poverty and disappointment. The hope of success as an author so long deferred and never realized, his foolish pride of independence and headship, and his utter indifference to his domestic duties and the comfort of his wife, made the picture still darker. Poor Jenny, fitted to shine in any circle, yet doomed all her married life to domestic drudgery instead of associations with the great man for whose literary companionship she had sacrificed everything. At one of Miss Biggs' receptions, Miss Anthony and I met Mr. Stansfeld, M.P., who had labored faithfully for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act and had in a measure been successful. We had the honor of an interview with Lord Shaftesbury at one of his crowded at-homes and found him a little uncertain as to the wisdom of allowing married women to vote for fear of disturbing the peace of the family. I have often wondered if men see, in this objection, what a fatal admission they make as to their love of domination. Miss Anthony was present at the great liberal conference at Leeds on October 17, 1882, to which Mrs. Helen Bright Clark, Miss Jane Cobden, Mrs. Tanner, Mrs. Scatcherd, and several other ladies were duly elected delegates from their respective liberal leagues. Mrs. Clark and Miss Cobden, daughters of the great Cornlaw reformers, spoke eloquently in favor of the resolution to extend parliamentary suffrage to women, which was presented by Walter McLaren of Bradford. As Mrs. Clark made her impassioned appeal for the recognition of women's political equality in the next bill for extension of suffrage, that immense gathering of 1,600 delegates was hushed into profound silence. For a daughter to speak thus in that great representative convention, in opposition to her loved and honored father, the acknowledged leader of that party, was an act of heroism and fidelity to her own highest convictions, almost without a parallel in English history. And the effect on the audience was as thrilling as it was surprising. The resolution was passed by a large majority. At the reception given to John Bright that evening, as Mrs. Clark approached the dais on which her noble father stood shaking the hands of passing friends, she remarked to her husband, I wonder if father has heard of my speech this morning, and if he will forgive me for thus publicly differing with him. The query was soon answered. As he caught the first glimpse of his daughter, he stepped down, and, pressing her hand affectionately, kissed her on either cheek. The next evening, the great Quaker statesman was heard by the admiring thousands who could crowd into Victoria Hall while thousands, equally desirous to hear, failed to get tickets of admission. It was a magnificent sight, and altogether a most impressive gathering of the people. Miss Anthony, with her friends, 
sat in the gallery opposite the great platform, where they had a fine view of the whole audience. When John Bright, escorted by Sir Wilfrid Lawson, took his seat, the immense crowd rose, waving hats and handkerchiefs, and, with the wildest enthusiasm, gave cheer after cheer in honor of the great leader. Sir Wilfrid Lawson, in his introductory remarks, facetiously alluded to the resolution adopted by the conference as somewhat in advance of the ideas of the speaker of the evening. The house broke into roars of laughter, while the father of liberalism, perfectly convulsed, joined in the general merriment. But when at length his time to speak had come, and Mr. Bright went over the many steps of progress that had been taken by the Liberal Party, he cunningly dodged the question of the emancipation of the women of England. He skipped round the agitation of 1867 and John Stuart Mill's amendment presented at that time in the House of Commons, the extension of the municipal suffrage in 1869, the participation of women in the establishment of national schools under the law of 1870, both as voters and members of school boards, the Married Women's Property Bill of 1882, the large and increasing vote for the extension of parliamentary suffrage in the House of Commons, and the adoption of the resolution by that great conference the day before. All these successive steps toward woman's emancipation, he carefully remembered to forget. While in London, Miss Anthony and I attended several enthusiastic reform meetings. We heard Bradlow address his constituency on that memorable day at Trafalgar Square, at the opening of Parliament, when violence was anticipated, and the Parliament houses were surrounded by immense crowds, with the military and police in large numbers to maintain order. We heard Michael Davitt and Miss Helen Taylor at a great meeting in Exeter Hall, the former on Home Rule for Ireland, and the latter on the nationalization of land. The facts and figures given in these two lectures, as to the abject poverty of the people and the cruel system by which every inch of land has been grabbed by their oppressors, were indeed appalling. A few days before sailing, we made our last visit to Ernestine L. Rose, and found our noble coadjutor, though in delicate health, pleasantly situated in the heart of London, as deeply interested as ever in the struggles of the hour. A great discomfort in all English homes is the inadequate system of heating. A moderate fire in the grate is the only mode of heating, and they seem quite oblivious to the danger of throwing a door open into a cold hall at one's back while the servants pass in and out with the various courses at dinner. As we Americans were sorely tried under such circumstances, it was decided, in the home of my son-in-law, Mr. Blatch, to have a hall stove, which, after a prolonged search, was found in London and duly installed as a presiding deity to defy the dampness that pervades all those ivy-covered habitations as well as the neuralgia that rings their possessors. What a blessing it proved, more than any one thing making the old English house seem like an American home. The delightful summer heat we in America enjoy in the coldest seasons is 
quite unknown to our Saxon cousins. Although many came to see our stove in full working order, yet we could not persuade them to adopt the American system of heating the whole house at an even temperature. They cling to the customs of their fathers with an obstinacy that is incomprehensible to us who are always ready to try experiments. Americans complain bitterly of the same freezing experiences in France and Germany, and in turn, foreigners all criticize our overheated houses and places of amusement. While attending a meeting in Birmingham, I stayed with a relative of Joseph Sturge, whose home I had visited 40 years before. The meeting was called to discuss the degradation of women under the Contagious Diseases Act. Led by Josephine Butler, the women of England were deeply stirred on the question of its repeal and have since secured it. I heard Mrs. Butler speak in many of her society meetings, as well as on other occasions. Her style was not unlike that one hears in Methodist camp meetings, from the best cultivated of that sect. Her power lies in her deeply religious enthusiasm. In London, we met Emily Faithful, who had just returned from a lecturing tour in the United States, and were much amused with her experiences. Having taken prolonged trips over the whole country, from Maine to Texas, for many successive years, Miss Anthony and I could easily add the superlative to all her narrations. It was a pleasant surprise to meet the large number of Americans usually at the receptions of Mrs. Peter Taylor. Graceful and beautiful, in full dress, standing beside her husband, who evidently idolized her, Mrs. Taylor appeared quite as refined in her drawing room as if she had never been exposed to the public gaze while presiding over a suffrage convention. Mrs. Taylor is called the mother of the suffrage movement. The reform has not been carried on in all respects to her taste, nor on what she considers the basis of high principle. Neither she nor Mrs. Jacob Bright has ever been satisfied with the bill asking the rights of suffrage for widows and spinsters only. To have asked this right for all women duly qualified as but few married women are qualified through possessing property in their own right, would have been substantially the same without making any invidious distinctions. Mrs. Taylor and Mrs. Bright felt that, as married women were the greatest sufferers under the law, they should be the first, rather than the last, to be enfranchised. The others, led by Miss Becker, claimed that it was good policy to make the demand for spinsters and widows and thus exclude the family unit and man's headship from the discussion. And yet, these were the very points on which the objections were invariably based. They claimed that if spinsters and widows were enfranchised, they would be an added power to secure to married women their rights. But the history of the past gives us no such assurance. It is not certain that women would be more just than men, and a small privileged class of aristocrats have long governed their fellow countrymen. The fact that the spinsters in the movement advocated such a bill shows that they were not to be trusted in extending it. John Stuart Mill, too, 
was always opposed to the exclusion of married women in the demand for suffrage. My sense of justice was severely tried by all I heard of the persecutions of Mrs. Bassat and Mr. Bradlow for their publications on the right and duty of parents to limit population. Who can contemplate the sad condition of multitudes of young children in the old world whose fate is to be brought up in ignorance and vice? A swarming, seething mass which nobody owns without seeing the need of free discussion of the philosophical principles that underlie these tangled social problems. The trials of Foote and Ramsey, too, for blasphemy seemed unworthy a great nation in the 19th century. Think of well-educated men of good moral standing thrown into prison in solitary confinement for speaking lightly of the Hebrew idea of Jehovah and the New Testament account of the birth of Jesus. Our Protestant clergy never hesitate to make the dogmas and superstitions of the Catholic Church seem as absurd as possible, and why should not those who imagine they have outgrown Protestant superstitions make them equally ridiculous? Whatever is true can stand investigation and ridicule. In the last of April, when the wild flowers were in their glory, Mrs. Mellon and her lovely daughter Daisy came down to our home at Basingstoke to enjoy its beauty. As Mrs. Mellon had known Charles Kingsley and entertained him at her residence in Colorado, she felt a desire to see his former home. Accordingly, one bright morning, Mr. Blanche drove us to Eversley through Strathfield, say, the park of the Duke of Wellington. This magnificent place was given to him by the English government after the Battle of Waterloo. A lofty statue of the Duke that can be seen for miles around, stands at one entrance. A drive of a few miles further brought us to the parish church of Canon Kingsley, where he preached many years, and where all that is mortal of him now lies buried. We wandered through the old church, among the moss-covered tombstones, and into the once happy home, now silent and deserted, his loved ones being scattered in different quarters of the globe. Standing near the last resting place of the author of Hypatia, his warning words for women in a letter to John Stuart Mill, seemed like a voice from heaven saying, with new inspiration and power, This will never be a good world for women until the last remnant of the canon law is civilized off the face of the earth. We heard Mr. Fawcett speak to his hackney constituents at one of his campaign meetings. In the course of his remarks, he mentioned with evident favor, as one of the coming measures, the disestablishment of the church, and was greeted with loud applause. Soon after, he spoke of woman's suffrage as another question demanding consideration, but this was received with laughter and jeers. Although the platform was crowded with advocates of the measure, among whom were the wife of the speaker and her sister, Dr. Garrett Anderson, the audience were evidently in favor of releasing themselves from being taxed to support the church, forgetting that women were taxed not only to support a church, but also a state in the management of neither of which they had a voice.
Mr. Fawcett was not an orator, but a simple, straightforward speaker. He made one gesture, striking his right clenched fist into the palm of his left hand at the close of all his strongest assertions, and although more liberal than his party, he was a great favorite with his constituents. One pleasant trip I made in England was to Bristol to visit the Mrs. Priestman and Mrs. Turner, sisters-in-law of John Bright. I had stayed at their father's house 40 years before, so we felt like old friends. I found them all liberal women, and we enjoyed a few days together, talking over our mutual struggles and admiring the beautiful scenery for which that part of the country is celebrated. The women of England were just then organizing political clubs, and I was invited to speak before many of them. There is an earnestness of purpose among English women that is very encouraging under the prolonged disappointments reformers inevitably suffer. And the order of English homes, too, among the wealthy classes, is very enjoyable. All go on from year to year with the same servants, the same surroundings, no changes, no moving, no building even. In delightful contrast with our periodical upheavals, always uncertain where we shall go next or how long our main dependence will stand by us. From Bristol, I went to Greenbank to visit Mrs. Helen Bright Clark. One evening, her parlors were crowded and I was asked to give an account of the suffrage movement in America. Some clergymen questioned me in regard to the Bible position of woman, whereupon I gave quite an exposition of its general principles in favor of liberty and equality. As two distinct lines of argument can be woven out of those pages on any subject, on this occasion, I selected all the most favorable text for justice to woman and closed by stating the limits of its authority. Mrs. Clark, though thoroughly in sympathy with the views I had expressed, feared lest my very liberal utterances might have shocked some of the strictest of the laymen and clergy. Well, said I, if we who do see the absurdities of the old superstitions never unveil them to others, how is the world to make any progress in the theologies? I am in the sunset of life, and I feel it to be my special mission to tell people what they are not prepared to hear, instead of echoing worn-out opinions. The result showed the wisdom of my speaking out of my own soul. To the surprise of Mrs. Clark, the primitive Methodist clergyman called on Sunday morning to invite me to occupy his pulpit in the afternoon and present the same line of thought I had the previous evening. I accepted his invitation. He led the services, and I took my text from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, showing that man and woman were a simultaneous creation, endowed in the beginning with equal power. Returning to London, I accepted an invitation to take tea one afternoon with Mrs. Jacob Bright, who, in earnest conversation, had helped us each to a cup of tea, and was turning to help us to something more, when over went table and all, tea, bread, and butter, cake, strawberries and cream, silver, china, in one conglomerate mass. Silence reigned. No one started. No one said, oh. 
Mrs. Bright went on with what she was saying as if nothing unusual had occurred, rang the bell, and when the servant appeared, pointing to the debris, she said, Charles, remove this. I was filled with admiration at her coolness and devoutly thankful that we Americans maintained an equally dignified silence. At a grand reception, given in our honor by the National Central Committee in Princess's Hall, Jacob Bright, M.P., presided and made an admirable opening speech, followed by a sister, Mrs. McLaren, with a highly complimentary address of welcome. By particular request, Miss Anthony explained the industrial, legal, and political status of American women, while I set forth their educational, social, and religious condition. John P. Thomason, M.P., made the closing address, expressing his satisfaction with our addresses and the progress made in both countries. Mrs. Thomason, daughter of Mrs. Lucas, gave several parties, receptions, and dinners, some for ladies only where an abundant opportunity was offered for a critical analysis of the idiosyncrasies of the superior sex, especially in their dealings with women. The patience of even such heroic souls as Lydia Becker and Caroline Biggs was almost exhausted with the tergiversations of members of the House of Commons. Alas for the many fair promises broken, the hopes deferred the votes fully relied on and counted, all missing in the hour of action. One crack of Mr. Gladstone's whip put a hundred liberal members to flight, members whom these noble women had spent years in educating. I never visited the House of Commons that I did not see Miss Becker and Miss Biggs trying to elucidate the fundamental principles of just government to some of the legislators. Verily, their divine faith and patience merited more worthy action on the part of their alleged representatives. Miss Henrietta Mueller gave a farewell reception to Miss Anthony and me on the eve of our departure for America, when we had the opportunity of meeting once more most of the pleasant acquaintances we had made in London. Although it was announced for the afternoon, we did, in fact, receive all day as many could not come at the hour appointed. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell took breakfast with us. Mrs. Fawcett, Mrs. Seville, and Miss Lord were with us at luncheon. Harriet Hosmer and Olive Logan soon after. Mrs. Peter Taylor later. And from three to six o'clock, the parlors were crowded. Returning from London, I passed my birthday, November 12, 1883, in Basingstoke. It was a sad day for us all, knowing that it was the last day with my loved ones before my departure for America. When I imprinted the farewell kiss on the soft cheek of my little granddaughter Nora in the cradle, she in the dawn and I in the sunset of life, I realized how widely the broad ocean would separate us. Miss Anthony met me at Alderley Edge where we spent a few days with Mr. and Mrs. Jacob Bright. There we found their noble sisters, Mrs. McLaren and Mrs. Lucas, young Walter McLaren and his lovely bride, Eva Mueller, whom we had heard several times on the suffrage platform. 
We rallied her on the step she had lately taken, notwithstanding her sister's able paper on the blessedness of a single life. While there, we visited Dean Stanley's birthplace, but on his death, the light and joy went out. The old church whose walls had once echoed to his voice, and the house where he had spent so many useful years, seemed sad and deserted. But the day was bright and warm, the scenery beautiful, cows and sheep were still grazing in the meadows, and the grass was as green as in June. This is England's chief charm. It is forever green, perhaps in compensation for the many cloudy days. As our good friends Mrs. McLaren and Mrs. Lucas had determined to see us safely on board the Servia, they escorted us to Liverpool, where we met Mrs. Margaret Parker and Mrs. Scatcherd. Another reception was given us at the residence of Dr. Ewing Whittle. Several short speeches were made, and all present cheered the parting guest with words of hope and encouragement for the good cause. Here the wisdom of forming an international association was first considered. The proposition met with such favor from those present that a committee was appointed to correspond with the friends in different nations. Ms. Anthony and I were placed on the committee, and while this project has not yet been fully carried out, the idea of the intellectual cooperation of women to secure equal rights and opportunities for their sex was the basis of the International Council of Women, which was held under the auspices of the National Woman Suffrage Association in Washington, D.C. in March 1888. On the Atlantic for 10 days, we had many opportunities to review all we had seen and heard. Sitting on deck hour after hour, how often I queried with myself as to the significance of the boon for which we were so earnestly struggling. In asking for a voice in the government under which we live, have we been pursuing a shadow for 50 years? In seeking political power, are we abdicating that social throne where they tell us our influence is unbounded? No, no, the right of suffrage is no shadow, but a substantial entity that the citizen can seize and hold for his own protection and his country's welfare a direct power over one's own person and property, an individual opinion to be counted on all questions of public interest, are better than indirect influence, be that ever so far-reaching. Though influence, like the pure white light, is all-pervading, yet it is oft-times obscured with passing clouds and nights of darkness. Like the sun's rays, it may be healthy, genial, inspiring, though sometimes too direct for comfort, too oblique for warmth, too scattered for any purpose. But as the prism divides the rays, revealing the brilliant colors of the light, so does individual sovereignty reveal the beauty of representative government and as the burning glass shows the power of concentrating the rays, so does the combined power of the multitude reveal the beauty of united effort to carry a grand measure. End of chapter 22. This recording by Karen Cummins.
I invite you to visit my website at karencummins.com.